We are going to continue our study in 1 Thessalonians this morning. We're going to be looking at chapter 5 section, which I began last week. This section on essential responsibilities, essential church responsibilities as it relates to life in the body of Christ. And we're going to be looking at, in, in particular, verse 15. You can already turn there, 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, chapter 5, verse 15. But uh, before we do, I want to uh, provide a, an illustration that will help focus our thoughts on uh, the uh, focus of Paul in that particular verse. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the, the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. They met uh, about 75 years ago or so at Wheaton College, both of them as young students, Elizabeth being a missionary kid herself, both of them wanted to go to some dark part of the world and be part of the work of bringing the gospel to those in darkness. Both of them ended up individually, independently, at least at first, in Ecuador, but then married in 1953. Their daughter Valerie was born two years later in 1955. Their desire, as time went on, was to reach a group, an unreached tribe deep in the Amazon called the Aucas or the Wadoni. There had been no substantive links with this tribe. The language, their language was completely unknown, and they had a very fearsome reputation. In fact, anthropologists have said that the history of human civilization, there had never been a tribe with such a high murder rate. The Elliots joined with four other couples, and after some initial distant contact with the tribe, the five men decided to make their first real personal contact. In January of 1956, the men landed their plane on the banks of a river that was close to where the tribe was located, and within moments, uh, all five men were speared to death. Elizabeth Elliot and her young daughter returned to the United States for a short time, but then ended up back in Ecuador. Together with Rachel Saint, the sister of the pilot who had flown the plane, together the, the two of them joined a neighboring tribe that was less hostile. There they were able to meet a Wadoni woman from that tribe, and from her they were able to learn the Wadoni language. A short time later, after being promised safety, they returned to that violent tribe and to the men who had killed those five men and brought with them the gospel of Christ. They lived with the tribe for five years, shared the gospel with them, And three years after the horrific murders, the Lord started a church. Even some of those men who were responsible for spearing to death, those five missionaries came to Christ. 
Later on in her work called Through Gates of Splendor, Elizabeth Elliot wrote these words testifying to the, the power of forgiveness and illustrating what Paul will teach in 1 Thessalonians 5.15. She wrote this, To the world at large, this was a sad waste of five young lives. But God had His plan and purpose in all things. The prayers of the widows themselves are for the Akas. We look forward to the day when these savages will join us in Christian praise. Plans were promptly formulated for the continuing of the work of those martyrs. Now, when we hear of a story like this, there are different responses to it among believers. Uh, one response would be something like this. I, I think I could do what Elizabeth Elliot would do. I think I could exhibit that kind of forgiveness, perhaps in that hypothetical moment. But that's something that I don't typically face, and so I will think through that when the time comes. Others would be even more dismissive. Some would say that this is a, an extraordinary response that belongs on the pages of hallowed church history. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot and the other widows, they belong to a class of exceptional Christians. It certainly does not speak to everyday life. Others would even say this, well, that's fine. That was her choice to forgive and to meet that horrible tragedy with with grace, but she's not an example for us. She's not, she, what she, prior life is, is not for all. Not everyone should respond that way to horrible tragedy. In fact, today, the popular word is justice, right? There must be justice, in fact, that idea has even made its way into the church, and today most would be calling for justice. In fact, today the, the, the high prize is to feel offense. To be offended is the new virtue to which many would aspire. About 15 years ago, Paul Helm, a, a Christian writer, wrote an article called Offendedness, and what he writes in that article is only intensified in the, pre, in the past couple of years. But he says this about the problem of offendedness today, how easy it is for people to hurt and to demand vengeance. He writes, quote, People have always been upset by insensitivity and negligence, but the profile of offendedness understood in this modern sense is being immeasurably heightened. The right never to be offended, never to suffer feelings of hurt or shame is, is being touted and promoted by both the media and by the government, and interest in it is being continuously excited. As a result, offendedness is coming to enjoy social and legal recognition of the sort that it has never before enjoyed. Claims to be hurt are being noticed, and they are likely to be rewarded. But how does the scripture address hurt? How does the word of God address the issue of offense? 
Well, the text that we have this morning speaks directly to this issue. As I've mentioned previously, this section that begins in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, will carry us through to verse 22. It is a section on Paul's final exhortations as he wraps up his instructions to the church and deals with a lot of household matters. And we noted last time that in verses 12 to 15, Paul deals with commands or rules as they relate to life together in the church with one another. And we're looking at this text, and like I said, we're going to look at the very last sentence, verse 15, this morning. But let me begin reading from verse 12. He writes, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Now, last Sunday, we looked at this text, this paragraph, and we broke it up into two, uh, into two uh, main sections here. First of all, we looked at this last, last Sunday, that as Paul describes the household conduct of the church, he first places responsibility exhortations there. Then he moves in verses 14 to 15 to, to uh, emphasize the responsibilities of church members to each other. And that is found in verses 14 and 15. And, and there are five exhortations here. We looked at four of them last week. First of all, Paul says, correct the stubborn. And, and again, he's addressing this to the entire membership. He says, correct the stumber, stubborn, number one. Number two, encourage the discouraged. Number three, support the frail. And then number four, he says, endure everyone. Be patient with everyone. That as you interact with these different kinds of needs, these different kinds of categories within the church, there is a one size that does fit all, and that is patience. But then in verse 15, we, we find this final, this, final, um, uh, this final exhortation when he says this, Seek grace, not, just, not justice, verse 15. Now as Paul concludes the... As Paul concludes his list of eight exhortations related to to church life, to essential church responsibilities, he gives us the most detailed command here in verse 15. This verse, this command, it it, it takes up the most wording in in this small paragraph. Moreover, as we look at this command, we see that it is, it's, it's expressed in the form of an antithesis, a, a classic case of not this but that. It's really one command, but it has two parts, one describing what is not to be done and the other describing what is to be done in its place. And so even this morning, our study will, will break up that text into those two ideas, this simple uh, command expressed in, in, in a negative, beginning first with the negative, verse 15a, the first half is going to be this, refuse to retaliate. Refuse to retaliate. And then in the second half of the verse, as Paul emphasizes 
the need to seek grace, not justice, the second half will be summarized by this phrase, strive to bless. Refuse to retaliate and strive to bless. Let's look at the first of those. Refuse to retaliate. He, he says this in the first half of verse 15. He says, see to it or see that no one repays another with evil for evil. And he begins with this, this verb that in, in all the other cases where Paul uses this verb, it, it expresses more of a, a concept of eyesight. Here he's using that figuratively. A command here in the figurative sense to, to be alert or, or to be on guard. And, and he's addressing this command in the plural. It's, it's addressed to the entire congregation. It's not just addressed to the leadership. He's already moved beyond that. He's, he's addressing the entire congregation. He's saying, be alert and, and be on guard. And the original nature of the language there expresses that, that Paul is, is concerned. He's got an apprehension here. And that apprehension is, is undoubtedly based upon Paul's general knowledge of, of, of the human condition, even among the redeemed. Perhaps, we don't know, perhaps there was a, uh, an update from Timothy when he came and said, hey, there's some problems with retaliation among the congregation. We don't know, Paul doesn't say, but we know from this, this expression that Paul is concerned. He's concerned and, and he's called vigilance. This is a clear and present danger, he says. And he, and he moves from that, that, general, uh, that, that general address, when he, when he commands everyone, he moves to the singular now. He, he, he couples that, that plural imperative now with the, a singular indefinite pronoun. He says, see to it, you all, that no one, that no one, and this this construction here emphasizes that the entire congregation is responsible for the single individual. We, we, as, as much as we have a community, we, we cannot always just look at things in, in the general, in the broad sense. He's calling a congregation as a whole to take note of this important issue at a very individual level. Have your have focused on individuals. In this regard, Paul says. And, and why? In, in what sense? He, he, he communicates this in the, the last part of the first half of this verse. He says, see that no one repays another with evil for evil. That's the issue. That's what Paul was concerned about. Knowing the human condition, knowing even the condition of, of, of saved individuals... Perhaps knowing some details in the, in the Thessalonian church, his concern is about retribution, vengeance. Now what Paul's language does here is it calls into immediate attention what we call the lex talionis. You've probably heard of that before, especially if you have any background in law. The lex talionis, which is Latin for the law of retaliation, law of retribution. Now, this is uh, an important law. In fact, it finds its basis in the Mosaic law. The law of retribution, the law of, of retaliation is expressed, it's described 
It's prescribed in the law of Moses. For example, very simply, in Deuteronomy 19 verse 21, sums it up well when Moses writes this, Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That was Moses' prescription as he received revelation from God himself as to how the people of Israel were to govern their, their people. The law of retribution, the law of prescribed retaliation. Now if we go back even earlier from Deuteronomy Exodus chapter 21, right there on, on Mount Sinai, when the, the law has, is being given, the Ten Commandments have just been revealed, we, we find this in Exodus 21, 22 to 25, if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him. And he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Very detailed, going through the list of common injuries, isn't it? You could also look at Leviticus chapter 24, 17 to 22. Again, the Lex Talianos is, is, is detailed and, and prescribed in that context as well. Indeed, the, this law of retribution is part of the Mosaic law because it reflects the very character of God himself. God is a God of vengeance. He is a God of justice. And so we can read Going back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip for the, the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon him. This is what Yahweh says. Psalm 94, verses 1 and 2 says, O Lord, Yahweh, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, render to the proud. We've even seen the concept of retribution or vengeance even in this letter. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 6 in that section that we covered that describes sexual ethics, there is this statement that Paul writes that reminds us that God is a God of vengeance. Paul says, let no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. You could look even at the concept of the day of the Lord is an expression of the vengeance of God upon the rebelliousness of this world. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 6 is also going to, to bring this up that it is only just, Paul says there, for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Indeed, Lex Talion is a reflection of God's character. However, Lex Talionos was never intended as permission for personalized individual retaliation. It was intended instead to ensure that as, as, as a rule for the people, that punishments would fit the crimes. 
that the punishments for crimes would be neither too lenient nor too excessive. Moreover, the Lex Talianos was put in place to ensure that the same punishments would be applied equally throughout the entire people without giving partiality to one or another. Indeed, the Lex Talianos is a, is a very important within his Law. It was a, that standard for governing structures among the people of Israel to maintain justice. And that's why you, you saw even in, in, the, in, in the text of Exodus chapter 21 that who is involved? It's the judges who are involved. This was to be decided and applied by those mechanisms that God had put in place. Those authorities that God had instituted for the administration of his justice. And so you could look at the law, the Pentateuch, and see that one of those institutions of justice is parents. And another one is the judges. Those who ruled the tribes of of Israel. But sinful humanity has seized onto Lex Talionis to make it a license for settling grievances and interpersonal relations. Even after the prescription of this law, we find that God's word has, has repeatedly come back to address the problem of personal vengeance. Lex Talionis is not license. And so you see, for example, in, in Psalm 7, Where David says, oh Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. We see this repeated in Proverbs Proverbs chapter 24, verses 28 to 29. Do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause, and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, I'll do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Don't say that, the wise men say. You could look at Proverbs 20, verse 22, or 25, verses 21 to 22, and you'd see this Repeated emphasis on uh, this prohibition against retributive justice taken into the hands of the individual. And of course, we're very familiar with this in Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus chastises the Pharisees, not because he is undermining the law of Moses. He is not attacking the law of Moses and and suggesting that it is somehow an, an, an... an inadequate or an unfaithful representation of the character of God. No, what had happened was that by that time, the Pharisees had taken the Lex Talion and become experts in using it to their advantage. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him as well. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. 
Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Jesus is taking the law and is explaining how this law has been misunderstood at interpersonal levels. And how the authority that was duly delegated to certain authority structures within society had been taken by individuals who now believed that they had the right to apply it in interpersonal relations. And Jesus says, "That's you've missed Moses' intent. You've missed the intent of God himself. Paul reflects this same this same sentiment elsewhere in his letter to the Romans, he says this, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. There, citing Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul is going to express this also in in his instruction to the Corinthian congregation. Mired in interpersonal strife. Members of the church taking each other to the secular law courts all believing they had lex talionis on their side. And Paul says this, Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and you do this even to your brethren. Peter's going to say the same thing in 1 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. You can turn and read that a different time. It's also important to note that this refusing to exact justice is itself a reflection of the man Jesus Christ. It is, it is not a somehow a character of God who, who did institute lex talionos, but we see that in the response to personal injustices, we see the example of Jesus Christ. Peter emphasizes this in 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 23. He says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. If there ever was an unjust act, this was it. If anyone had the right, the basis to claim lex talionis, it was Jesus, but while being reviled, He did not revile. In fact, you remember the words, Father, forgive them. Few things are as innate to our flesh as to seek retaliation. And no vice is so easily and universally justified and even regarded as virtue, especially today, as retaliation. It's that one sin that you can commit and people of 
many different categories, will not just close their eyes and look the other way and maybe blush. Instead, they will applaud. Justice. The man got justice. The woman got justice. And yet, as we're going to see, that this personal pursuit of vindication taken in the form of personal vengeance is something the Apostle Paul, as well as Christ himself, clearly denounces. And even, and we know this in ourselves, that, that, that we seek this, even in our redeemed state, we, we seek this kind of justice specifically because we ourselves have received mercy, have we not? We, we know our sins are forgiven, that to us God is no longer a God of vengeance. He has become the God of love, and the God who in His own purposes has determined to pour upon us all good things, all spiritual blessings. We know that, and yet, knowing that, we, we also see these interpersonal grievances, these things that have been done against us, and we fear that God may show that person the same mercy He has shown me, and there never will be payment for it. And that's what so often motivates our, 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 our pursuit of vindication, of retribution. Jerry Bridges expresses this sentiment well when he says this, forgiving costs us our sense of justice. We all have an innate sense deep within our souls, but it has been perverted by our selfish, sinful natures. We want to see justice done, but the justice we envision satisfies our own interests. We must realize that justice has been done. God is the only rightful administrator of justice in all of creation, and his justice has been satisfied. In order to forgive our brother, we must be satisfied with God's justice and forgo the satisfaction of our own. And that's the hard part right there. And what Bridges calls us to, and What Paul does implicitly calls us to this, that when injustices have been done, offenses done in the body of Christ, one to another, that when we start to think about the need for justice, our our thoughts must take us directly to the cross and say, well, it's already been paid. We claim that for ourselves, don't we? Every time we confess our own sins. Every time we confess our own offenses to God and to our neighbors, we go to the Lord and we claim, as 1 John 1, 9 does, we we claim the the atonement of Christ and, and we claim the mercy of God that He is faithful and just based on Christ's work on the cross to even in that, that temporal sense, forgive us of our sins in that moment of confession. And that we must look on the sins of others the same way, that the payment for their offenses committed against us, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in a family, whether it's in an extended family, and whether it's in this context of the body of Christ, that when we're dealing with brothers and sisters, when that temptation comes to get vengeance, we must immediately go to the cross and say, vengeance has been done. Christ paid for that. Thomas Watson, in 
summarizing this concept, said, it is more honor to bury an injury than to avenge it. More honor. And Jonathan Edwards perhaps summarized the application here most succinctly when in his fourth, 14th resolution he said this, resolved never to do anything out of it. But notice, Paul doesn't just say, put down your arms. He doesn't just say, just move on. Just forget about it and move on. In fact, it might be easy to follow the first half of Paul's instruction here. We might be mature enough to recognize, okay, retribution in interpersonal relations is wrong. I get it. I just won't keep an account. But Paul goes beyond that, and this is what is so very important to recognize. He does not just call for us to to refuse to act with vengeance. He goes on in the second half of, of the verse to say this, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Notice he's, he's prohibiting retaliation. That sinful tendency that we all experience must be mortified. But in its place, a different virtue must be cultivated. And it's the, the, the striving in the face of offense to bring grace, to give that which is undeserved. It's, again, it's one thing to say, I will not react with what is deserved. I'll, I'll just be silent. I'll just stay out of it. But it's a totally different thing that Paul prescribes here to say, to meet evil with grace, to meet evil with good, to, to meet evil done against me with that which is beneficial. The, the, the conjunction but here introduces the strong contrast and sets up the positive side of the exhortation. And notice it's followed by this very important adverb, all. It doesn't allow here there to be a list of, uh, of, of exceptions that we, like the Pharisees, could tack on to this law. Instead, he makes it very clear that there's, there's no exceptions. He says, always. One commentator says this, it covers every type of imaginable situation. There's no context in which believers are not to seek the welfare of those around them. And that word, that verb there, to seek after, is, is a very strong verb it means to follow in haste in order to find something. It's, 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 it's a, a, a strong verb that is so intense, in fact, that it is often used to describe persecution. To seek after someone in such an intense way so as to destroy them. So, so for example, in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9, Paul uses that same verb there when he writes this, because I persecuted, I sought after. The church of God. This is an intense verb. Paul also uses it to to describe life-consuming pursuits. It's found, for example, in 1 Timothy 6 verse 11, where he says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue, seek after. There's the verb again. Pursue, seek after righteousness and godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and, and gentleness. And what is the the Christian, the, the, the everyday Christian to seek after. 
With such intensity, Paul says he is to seek after, she is to seek after that which is good. It's literally the good. Seek after the good. Be hastily running after in an intense the good. In the face of injustice, in the face of of offendedness. Be pursuing the good. And this word stands in direct contrast to the repetition of, of the word evil that was used previously in this verse. That word evil stands for that which is harmful and, and destructive, but this word good stands for that which is beneficial and edifying. It builds up. It contributes positively. So notice once again that Paul is not advocating merely the the, the silence in response to, to, uh, to evil or injustice done at this impersonal level. He, he's not just saying, just, just keep your mouth shut and move on. Just forget about it and you'll be okay. He's saying, match that with what will build. Whatever that evil merit, the opposite is to be done. That is a... It is a powerful concept. And it shows just how otherworldly the Christian life is, doesn't it? This is not what our world teaches. I don't care where you look. And even if they do, and certainly you can go back and read some of the writings of the philosophers and, and those in Paul's day who were... Uh, Greek philosophers and interested in, and focused on ethics, and they'll talk about not being revengeful, but they could never attain it. They could never attain it. They lacked the, the ultimate example in Jesus Christ, and they lacked the new life that was necessary to enable this to actually happen. As Thomas writes, he says, in the place of wrong, injury, harm motivated by a vengeful spirit, Christians must diligently endeavor to produce what is intrinsically beneficial to others. The welfare of the offender must be the prime objective. Now, in what context? First of all, Paul says, well, this relates to your relationships with one another. Go back to verse 15. He says, for one another. This is... This is a, a designation that, that describes those within the church. Those within the church, the one another. Uh, this, is, this is that kind of life that we are to pursue in life together so that when someone says something we don't like or does something we don't like and that instant uh, temptation arises to, to begin to feel hurt and, and vindictive means that Paul says, Beloved, in the midst of that moment, flip the switch off and turn a different one on. Kill that thought. And instead, focus on what must be the response. That your purpose is to seek the benefit of the one who has hurt you. That is so counterintuitive to our flesh. But he even extends it beyond this, and and, and in doing this shows just how unique that that community in Thessalonica was in terms of its comparison with the world and how unique our community is 
with respect to the world as well. He says, and to those outside the church. And you go back to a text like chapter 2, verse 14 in 1 Thessalonians, and we read how the countrymen of the Thessalonians were persecuting that church. And Paul says, don't seek personal vengeance. Don't be vindictive. This is to be your testimony. You're to, you're to respond to the ostracism, the insults, the, the, the mockery, and even the physical harm done for your faith by your fellow countrymen. You are to respond to it by seeking the good. Paul prescribes here a, a law for all of life's personal relationships. And, and he doesn't, as, as I've said already, he doesn't add any exceptions. This is what is to mark our lives. Day in, day out, morning to evening. In fact, one commentator, Gordon Fee, sums it up well when he says this, it must, rather than hit or miss, it must be what is good rather than wrong for wrong. And it must be pursued rather than done occasionally and at one's convenience. Well, as we wrap this up and think of how to take this text home and live it out in our lives, a few thoughts as we close. Number one, relinquish the pursuit of retributive justice. And have as, as paramount in your thinking as it comes to personal relationships, this truth, it is better to be defrauded than to get equal. You, you have that mentality and it'll change your life. It is better to be defrauded than to get equal. In God's eyes, in the eyes of the one who matters most, in these eyes, it is better to be defrauded than to get equal. Relinquish that impulse in you to always react with a sense of evil for evil, tit for tat. Secondly, passivity is not enough. You must seek actively the good of those who offend. And perhaps you're already at the point where someone can say something about you, perhaps even on social media, or at work, or at home, and, and, and you just are silent. But you've got to take it now a step further, and you must seek the good. You must now turn that, what was that evil desire to take justice into your own hands, now turn that into the desire to be the source of blessing. Number three, understand that hurtful actions are to be met with the opposite, gracious edification. Hurtful actions are to be met with gracious edification. That in response to the one who might criticize, in response to the one who might harshly admonish, in response to the one who is impatient to us, we respond with gracious edification. We must seize the opportunity as hard as it is to be a source of blessing to their lives. And finally, in all of this, of course, it is all built upon a, a very strong confidence in the sovereignty and wisdom of God. Rest in the sovereignty and wisdom of God. If injustices have been committed against you, 
by other members of the church, even members of the community, you must really leave it in God's hands. It is His to avenge, not yours. Elizabeth Elliot again wrote this as she concluded her book, Through Gates of Splendor. This is really what what led her to be able to go back to those who killed her husband and left her young daughter without a father. She wrote this, Cause and effect are in God's hands. It is not the part of faith. Is it not the part of faith simply to let them rest there? God is God. I dethrone him in my heart if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice. The one who laid the earth's foundations and settled its demands knows where the lines are drawn. He gives all the light we need for trust and obedience. One final note before we pray. The man who killed Jim Elliot with the spear became a believer in Jesus Christ. He died two years ago. And Steve Saint, the son of the pilot who had been killed, Nate Saint, wrote an obituary for the man. And I want to read the closing words, which powerfully illustrate for us the power of forgiveness. And not just forgiveness, but seeking the good. He closed his obituary with these words. He says, I have known Minkaye since I was a little boy when he took me under his wing and had his sons teach me to blowgun hunt. He was one of my dearest friends in the world. Yes, he killed my father, but he loved me and my family. One of my grandsons is named Minkaye. We will miss you, Mayame Minkaye, but we hold on to the certain hope that we will soon see you again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we, we know these words are true because they are so different from what we hear in ourselves and in the world around us. The power and beauty of these words in 1 Thessalonians 5.15 are so attractive and we yet confess our lives still remain so far from that standard. But we thank you that you have so revealed your word that, and this word is so living and active that it pierces, but it also energizes, it enlivens, it gives us hope. And we know that this is not just a long shot or a, a pipe dream. This can be lived out in the lives of many other Christians, including 
the likes of Elizabeth Elliot and, and Steve Saint. We pray, Father, that you would make us into that kind of people and perhaps who would never have the opportunity to display this truth at that kind of vivid level. But we do pray you'd make this true of us on the everyday level, even when no one else is really watching, but you are. And we pray that this would be true of us. And we ask this for the, glories, the, the, the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.